Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. We're in our third week in the book of Jonah. And for those of you, maybe I'm not going to go into all the details of Jonah, but the book of Jonah, we believe, was written somewhere about 750 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, So he's an Old Testament uh, minor prophet, what we would say. Um, We have made the point, or I've made the point over the last several weeks, that I think the evidence shows that this is an historical account uh, that really took place. Um, a, a guy really named Jonah, really was a city named Nineveh, and historically we can definitely <clears throat> you know, justify those positions, um, and that these things really did happen. It's one of the smallest uh, books in the Old Testament, uh, just a couple pages in your Bible probably, and so um, what's, what's the thrust of it? So obviously God calls on this man named Jonah to go to a Gentile pagan city called Nineveh, one of the largest cities at the time in the world, <clears throat> was completely um, pagan. We don't have any sense that there was any Christians there. And he's called to go and tell them to repent of their sin and turn away from it uh, and basically turn to the God of Israel or God of Abraham. And Jonah you would think as a prophet would be like, man, that's exactly what I've been thinking to do in my life is to do those kind of things. Doesn't want to have anything to do with this. And decides he is going to run as far as he can. He's going to turn away from the face of the Lord. He gets on a ship. He goes to Joppa. He gets on a ship. The ship is heading to a place called Tarshish, which we believe is the farthest port away in the modern, in the modern world at that time, um, which was in Spain. Um, and that's where he's headed. And he pays a fare and he gets on the ship and he leaves. And so the question becomes is, why does he do this? Why is he running? We think it's because he even says in chapter 4, if you've been reading the book, uh, he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to see them repent. He wants them to be judged. He wants them to be held you know, um, responsible for their, their carnage. Uh, they were a, an enemy of Israel, and so obviously that may have played a, a piece of it as well. Uh, and so he doesn't want them to come to faith. And so this is where we find ourselves here in the story, in the historical account. Now, a few weeks ago, um, Hunter Fustel came and spoke and preached, and he preached on Job, another Old Testament book, and, and the life of Job, and the fact that, that Job, um, you know, had, had, was very blessed, and that, that Satan came into the throne room of God and said, well, he's only faithful because you've given him everything, God, and God says, okay, well, then test him. Take things away. And so the whole Hunter did a great job kind of explaining that whole story and summarizing it up. And, and, and Job stayed faithful, even though he lost everything, even though he lost his health and his family and, and everything, his land and his livestock, and he loses it all and he reigns faithful. And that's just a beautiful picture of our faithfulness and how we should be faithful. And, and, but here's what I've been thinking as I've been wrestling with the text today and this, this whole book, um, because it has presented some challenges to me that um, I was... You know, it's been really challenging this week to, to kind of think through what, what I think I'm supposed to teach on. And I started to think about what does God do for people that aren't faithful that are believers? Jonah, we, or excuse me, Job, we look at and he says, well, he's faithful. He, he stayed the course even when things were hard. What about those of us that don't stay the course? Because let's be honest, most of us don't. Most of us fail to be obedient. Most of us fail to honor God and what we should do. We look at Job and we say, oh, we want to all aspire to be Job. But most of us, at least myself, speaking for myself here, fall willfully short of that type of faithfulness. And so I began to see in the text here that this is exactly kind of a picture of how God works in the midst of someone that who's disobedient but yet is a believer, right? Not a Christian because this is obviously before Christ, but a, a believer, Believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was a follower of God. And so I begin to think about how does, there's, I think, roughly, I don't know what the total number is right now, about 8 billion people in the world. Not a lot of people. How many of them are completely faithful to God? Yep, none. How many of them are Christians? We don't know. Clearly, we would argue less than 50%, maybe 
less than 30%, maybe around 20%. We don't know. But clearly, the majority of the world is not following after the God of the Bible. Not what we would say is the God of Abraham and believing in Jesus. And yet, God is accomplishing all that he wants to in the midst of all of that. Do you ever think about that for a second? Like every one of us is disobedient and willfully ignoring what God wants us to do in some area of our life. We're not being obedient to do something or something we're not supposed to do, we do. And it's, in fact, for some people, it's massive. That, you know, people that don't believe they're, they're committing an incredible amount of atrocities towards God and sinful behavior. But even Christians were unfaithful. And isn't it incredible that God is bringing about his perfect plan in the midst of 8 billion people that are turned against him in one way, shape, or form. Just think about that for a second. You probably can't get your five kids to do something that you want them to do and have it all come out the way you want it to do. Or one child. There's 8 billion people that are rebelling against God and not wanting to do what he wants to do. We all are some type of Jonah in our life, and God is still bringing about his perfect plan for his glory in the world. That is a miracle. That is an absolute phenomenal miracle. And so that leads me to your big idea this morning. God is working even in our disobedience. God is working even in our disobedience. So here in the story of Jonah, is God working? Jonah's rebelling. He's not doing what God wants. In fact, he is running from God. Is God's purpose still going to be accomplished? Yes. God is still going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He is going to use even Jonah's disobedience for his purposes. He's going to work through it. it, Does it mean he causes Jonah to be disobedient? No, I didn't say that. He's going to work through those things sovereignly and and what we would say is uh, providentially and work out all of those things for his purpose. It is an incredible thing how God does this. So let's take a look at it. So what we're going to do is is keep that thought in mind. We're going to keep revisiting that thought that that God is working even in our disobedience to bring about his perfect will and his perfect plan for his perfect glory. And along the way, we're going to see some things that are either going to help us um, stay the course. It's going to be reminders of how we should live. Because here's the thing. If God is working his plan out, even in disobedient people, does that mean that we get a We don't have to be obedient. Does that mean that we can not strive for holiness? No. We absolutely must be striving for holiness as Christians. We must strive to live a holy life, pleasing to the Lord, turning away from sin, repenting, right? Dying to to those things. Absolutely. So just because God is capable of working in our disobedience doesn't mean that he appreciates our disobedience or he wants us to be disobedient. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to seek after him. But because of the fallen world, he has to work in us, even in our disobedience, to bring about his perfect plan. So let's kind of see some of that, how we work this out here, all right? So here we have it. Verse 1, or verse 5, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5. So what we have here is set it up. So Jonah's on the ship. He's heading to Tarshish. He doesn't want to go. He's trying to flee from God. And what do we see happen? It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So here we have, he's, he's on the ship, he's heading out, and he's decided, uh, God's decided that he doesn't, obviously Jonah's running, he realizes that, and he's going to make it difficult for Jonah. He's going to make it difficult, not just for Jonah, he's going to make it difficult for this whole crew of this ship. In fact, he's going to put their lives at risk, because he's going to bring this this storm up, and that they're not going to be able to to go ahead and sail all the way across the Mediterranean. So we see here that God is using and has power over nature to bring upon his perfect plan. There's disobedience happening. Jonah's rebelling. We have no reason to believe that these... uh, People that are on the ship, the, 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 the sailors, I think they're Phoenician probably, 
that there's, there's no Christianity there, we believe. We don't see any of that. And so there's all of this disobedience, this rebellion, this lack of who God is, and God is now working in the midst of that disobedience to bring about his will. And so one of the things he does is he causes the storm. Now, if we go and we look in the New Testament, we see that there's other places that God uses storms, right? A little differently. We look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 38. Here they were, Jesus was with his disciples or his apostles in a boat. A storm breaks out and it's taking on water. And they wake him here in verse 38. And it says, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so Jesus basically says a few words to them and then calms the storm and the storm calms. And in verse 41, he says, and they were filled with great fear. I would encourage you to underline that. Great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They had a great reverence for Jesus at that time. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in a bit. But so here, what do we see? Is it for God to work even in our disobedience in the world? And everybody that is rebelling, what does God have to have? Or what does he have to be? He has to be omnipotent. He has to be all-powerful. And so that's the first thing I want you to take away from this, is that for God to work in our disobedience, he needs to be all-powerful. Because he's got 8 billion people rebelling, and yet we have to step back and say, well, if God's perfect plan is going to continue to to take place, God has to be all-powerful. There's no other way for him to do this if he is not all-powerful. Another word for that would be omnipotent. Let's keep going. Verse 6, or verse 5. It says, Then the mariners, be the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. We're going to see that here in the text is that they all believe in some type of God. It's a little G there, so it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's some God. There's idols. There's all sorts of gods. Uh, if they were Phoenician, they believe um, there's, there's multiple gods. There's a God of the, the sea, God of the land. There's multiple gods, and we'll, we'll see that here in a minute. And they're afraid. Obviously, they're worried about sinking and dying. And so what do they do? It says in the next verse, it says, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, I want to be real careful here because as we come to a text like this, we don't want to interject things. And so sometimes when we talk about what we think may be happening, we want to remember that that's not exactly what the Scripture says. All right, so we want to be very careful how we handle the text. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But they're throwing the cargo out. Now, if they were sailing all the way to Spain, their cargo was their payment. Their cargo was the thing that was paying their way. So if they're chucking their cargo over, there is a huge fear that they're going down. Now, what I believe is happening here is that this storm is not like any other storm. Because there you're going to see that there's a fear in them that at least seemingly is like any other fear that they've had. And so they're chucking the cargo over. And then it goes on, it says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, had had lain down, and was fast asleep. So Jonah's in the belly of the ship. It's a wood ship. It's got oars on the side. There's a cargo space down below where they keep all of the... These, little, these old ships could haul... 10, 15 tons of cargo. Uh, They would haul copper and all sorts of uh, spice and all sorts of things. Jonah's in some compartment down below. He's obviously paid a fare. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's, he's he's a passenger. He's asleep. Now, I want to give you a word of caution here. If you're a Bible studier, if you study scripture, if you read commentaries, do we know why Jonah's asleep? No. But if you read commentaries, you can find pages and pages on why Jonah's sleeping. Doesn't say any of that here, right? Maybe Jonah was just tired. (laughs) He was just sleeping. And I understand that sometimes pastors and teachers will try and, and and I'm sure I've done it and and I'm guilty guilty of it in the future, of sometimes sometimes trying to create something that's there to be able to teach something uh, and, and maybe a good application. But I just want to always caution us. When we come to the text, let the text speak for itself. 
right? Let it speak for itself. And, and, and yes, we can draw some analogies from it at times, but even when we do that, we want to be careful to say, well, if this was the case, then this, right? But we're not saying for sure that that was the case. Jonah could have been, look, he paid the fare. He's, he's, not, he's not a hand. He's not getting paid. He, could, he said, look, I, I'm not working. That's why I paid the money. I'm going down. I'm going to sleep. It's been a long day. I want to sleep, right? So when you read and you study and someone says, well, he went to sleep because, and boy, there's, there's, there's a plethora of information out there about why Jonah's sleeping, okay? Be very careful when you read that kind of stuff, okay? Maybe somebody's right, but God doesn't share that with us. If God wanted us to know why Jonah was sleeping, he would tell us why he was sleeping, and that would help us, right? But he doesn't, right? And I, look, I, I will even step out on some things at times, and I probably will do that here in this message, and so we want to be very careful when we do that. So the captain, which was the head sailor, that's, well, that's translated, came down and said to him, said to Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. I want you to think about what, that, what the captain just said there. Now think about who Jonah is. Think about what God has said to Jonah when he asked him to go to Nineveh. And think about what's happening right here. Jonah's trying to run from the face of God. He's been told to do something. And what does the captain say? Arise. Isn't that what God told Jonah? Arise. Same word. And go to Nineveh. Now he's saying, arise. Call to your God. The God that Jonah is running from. Do you see God's providence here? That God's working his sovereign call to Jonah? Jonah can't even go into the ship of the belly of the ship and be sailing to Spain without God coming through the captain to him and saying, look, remember, you're supposed to rise and I want you to call on your God. Jonah's like, what are you doing? I'm trying to flee. Read the next part of it. Perhaps the God will give you, give us a thought to us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. What did God ask Jonah to do? To rise, proclaim God, and go to Nineveh. Why? So they would not perish. Everything this captain is doing is reminding Jonah of his original call. Right? Jonah cannot get away from God, even in his disobedience. Have you ever felt that, though? Like, you, you really believe that God is you know, scripturally speaking to you to not do something or to do something, and you just ignore it, you ignore it, you ignore it. And it's like everywhere you turn, there he is, reminding you what he's asked of you, reminding you of the sin that you need to confess, that you need to, you know, to make amends with, whatever it may be. He's there, right? He's there. So, a couple things I, I want to kind of take away as, as kind of some points here in the text. The first one is, notice that these, these guys are afraid, right? They were afraid that they were going to die. They're all calling on their own God. They didn't sin. They, they did nothing wrong. Now, they're not believers, so you could say, well, they're in perpetual sin. But yeah, they're not believers, but they're not willfully disobeying God. That's Jonah, and yet these men's lives are being threatened because of Jonah. I think there's something that we can learn here from that, that text. What is it? It's that our sin usually, and I could say always, affects the lives of other people. When we sin, don't fool yourself. It's affecting other people. It's, it's having a huge effect on the people around you, your children, your parents, your mate, your church, your work, right? We, we see that all through Scripture. We think that we can hold our sin and keep it secret, and it's just, well, it's just me. It's not involving anybody else. And it's always involving somebody else. I would argue, I'll just give you an example. I didn't use this first service, but I think, so like some sins that are really secret, we would think about as um, pornography, is one that's at, that jumps to my mind, right? It's very secret. And you think, well, it doesn't hurt anybody because no one knows but me. Well, that's not true in so many ways. One, what about 
the industry that you're supporting by viewing it? Aren't you affecting all of those people? You're really perpetuating their sin. You're perpetuating maybe the, the abuse that's happening in an industry, the lostness that's happening. By, by even participating in that sin, you're funding it in some way. And you don't think that when you participate in that type of sin that you're not different for your spouse? You are. You say, no, no, you are. You cannot go into that type of environment and do those type of things and, and have that, that understand that mental thoughts and that type of sin and not be different with your spouse. Now you say, well, they don't know that. Well, yeah, but your sin is affecting other people. It's affecting your parenthood, your parenting. How you parent, how you discipline. You have guilt. Your guilt affects how you interact with people. Your guilt affects how you interact at church, interact with other people. When other people are in sin, how do you respond to them? Maybe you don't do because you're, you're in such sin yourself. You don't want to go there. And so now your life is affecting, your sin is affecting the lives of other people. Sin is devastating. It is. And this is why we need to understand. That's why, that's why so often Paul talks about killing it, putting it to death, um, Puritan writers would talk about the mortification of the flesh, putting to death the flesh because they understand the, the deadliness of sin. Obviously, it's, it's rebellion against God. It, it's, it's dishonoring to God. That's the biggest, most important thing. But then the repercussions of it, it's like a, a rock that you drop in the water. It ripples and it just, it can, it just destroys things. We see in the book of James when... Um, Talks about the tongue and the damage. It says the, this tongue can do such damage it sets whole forests on fire. Right? Gossip. Sin can destroy things. It can destroy churches. What you say, how you say it, who you're talking about can destroy churches. It can destroy relationships. It can pit people against each other. And so we have to have this appreciation for the the consequence of sin in our life and how it affects others. Here, these men are possibly going to go down with the ship because of Jonah's sin. They're going to possibly lose their life. What's the second thing here in the text, I think? Well, if God is working even in our disobedience, we have to realize that many people in the world worship false gods. So if less than 30% of the world is Christian. Just throwing a number out there. God is working even in the other 70% of people to bring about his plan. Even though they don't believe in his plan, even they don't believe in, even in his existence, because he's all-powerful and he's God, creator of all things, he is working through all people and all things for his purposes. We can go back in the Old Testament, we see this all over the place. Probably the, the, maybe the best one is, is Egypt, how he works in that whole system there and through Pharaoh and through the plagues and, and all the demonstrations of his power to bring about what he wanted. And do you know that when he set them free, what they got when they left? They got all of Egypt's gold. He used Egypt to make them into a nation. And I know this is hard for people to sometimes understand that they were put into bondage, and what did bondage do for them? It made them not intermarry with other tribes. And so they grew in those 400 years into a great nation. And then he funds them with Egypt's gold and sends them out and gives them a promised land eventually after their disobedience once again. But once again, even in that disobedience in the wilderness, God is working through that to bring them ultimately to a place where they'll enter the promised land. And even today, God is working the disobedience of his church. We are not fully obedient. And so many people in the world will worship false gods, but that does not keep God from being working even in the midst of that disobedience. All right, verse 7. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, I just want to share with you that obviously something, the storm was pretty significant because now they're realizing that somebody has brought this on them. 
It's not just that this is a storm. They've thrown their cargo overboard. They're realizing that this is not letting up something. Somehow God has allowed them to understand that there's an, someone that's causing this issue. Somebody's sin here. And even if they don't understand what all that means, that some reason there's a God that is not happy with someone on the boat. And once again, what do we see here? We see God working through the sailors to bring about identification and a admonishment of Jonah. So God's all-powerful. He's doing this, right? No one's going to stop it, even though Jonah's being disobedient. Even though these are not believing sailors, God is working through them to bring the spotlight onto Jonah. And it says, so they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. Now, was that a coincidence? Or was God sovereignly working it that way for his purposes? Obviously, he was sovereignly working it that way for his purpose. He could have just picked up Jonah and moved him miraculously. He doesn't do that. He's working in the the world to bring about his direction and working in people for his purposes, right? That's just how he does it. That's That's his plan. That's how he works his will out. So we talk about casting lots. Now, I'm going to share with you that there was places in the Old Testament and the New Testament where they cast lots, and God worked through that process. I'm not telling you to go home and cast lots to, dis- to make decisions, okay? And whatever that, those objects were that they threw down, whatever, God was using it there. Look, Solomon had hundreds of wives. Guys, I don't think I'm recommending because Solomon had 100 wives that you should go do that, right? There's all sorts of things in Scripture that God worked in people's disobedience in a fallen world for his purposes. That doesn't mean that we mirror those things, right? And so here, he's working in this casting of lots. We see this even when the, the creation of Israel, when the, when the 12 sons broke up the 12 tribes and the land was given. They cast lots to see who got what land. Was that random chance? No, I believe God was sovereignly working in that to make sure that they got what they were going to get. But that's how God communicated what land that they should have. In the New Testament, when when Judas kills himself and he's one of the 12 apostles and and they're going to replace Judas and there's two men that they've kind of put forth, they cast lots and Matthias gets it. Was God saying, well, whoever gets it, I don't really care. No, I believe that God was sovereignly working in that process to bring about Matthias as the next apostle. All right. So what, what do we see here, though? So they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. God calls out Jonah in his time. So what's, what's the point here? God can reveal our sin whenever he chooses. How's that make you feel? Because some of us, all of us probably at some level, have hidden sin. And we think we're going to take it to the grave with us that no one's ever going to know. I just want to tell you that any time that God thinks it is necessary for his purposes or for your good, he will reveal that sin and his timing. And that, that, should, that should make you, well, ultimately, that should make you tremble. I'm going to tell you a story, um, and I'd say this with all respect uh, for the, the individual in the story, uh, who's a good friend of mine. Um, and I'm telling you this because I think it, it shows that God works through disobedience to bring about his plan because he's all-powerful and he sometimes reveals sin to do that and to bring about his plan. So in 1998, the Ridge Church, now 25 years old, was founded by a gentleman. God-fearing man, great husband, good friend of mine. Uh, My wife and I started attending just a few months after the church was founded, At some point, after the founding of the church, relatively soon, this man enters into an adulterous affair with someone else in the church. No one knows except this man and this woman. That affair lasts for probably three years. It ends. We only know this in hindsight. Another seven, eight, nine years pass. And now we're in 2013. And God reveals the sin. That pastor was the lead pastor here, and he stepped down. It was horrific two, three years for his life and his family. You think, well, I thought, in fact, when I talked to him, he said, when we confronted him with this sin, he said, I thought 
I would take that to the grave with me. No one knew. God knew. And God wanted it revealed. So now why would God reveal that? Well, you'd have to ask God. I, can, I, can, I have some suspicion. <laughs> I have some thoughts. One, it was a loving act of God to reveal it. And you say, wow, how's that possible? Because guilt and shame were crushing this person. Relieving the guilt, bringing it into the light, as John 3 would say, relieves that. It is horrific in the process. But relieving it brings restoration, brings repentance, brings forgiveness, brings a sense of new life, no more guilt, no more shame in the life. So God has purpose there. And I believe, I believe that's why God did it. Now, I want to share a, a broader picture, a bigger picture of how I see that God sovereignly was doing this. And, and, in his, and his call and his timing and worked in disobedient people. So the church was founded because I believe that God gave this man the vision of the church. He planted the church. He felt that God had told him to plant the church um, and it's growing. And do you know that when that church plant, we were meeting at the Brookville High School, if it would have come out in the early days of the church that this man was doing this, the church would have probably folded. It would have been under. So God, it didn't come out. God didn't reveal it. So we fast forward a little bit. We buy in 2005, we buy this land, these 23 acres. Now we have 30, but it's 23 acres. And we start to build a building. Do you know in the midst of that building process, and this was after the affair was over for several years, if it would have come out then, it probably would have destroyed the church. He was the only pastor, right? It was just him. We were a, we were a seeker-oriented church, and there was you know, not a lot of um, leadership here, mature leadership and Christians, and it would have probably destroyed the church. We'd have had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, no pastor, and it could have destroyed the church. But God didn't have it come out then. I get hired in 2007, and I'm an assistant pastor, I'm so glad it didn't come out then because I would have been in the lead role and I wouldn't have not been ready for that at all. Heck, I'm not ready for it now. And so God mercifully did not have it come out. Now, just bear, follow me here. In 2013, well, in 2011, we hire another pastor. Now there's three of us. In 2013, we decide to build an addition to the building. Six, seven hundred thousand dollars. All of you are sitting in it over here. And during that time of that build, the pastor takes a sabbatical, like two months off. The other pastor, Pastor Gary, is preaching at the high school. We actually leave this building and we go to the high school because it's under construction. And Gary's preaching over these several months. We're going to be there, probably going to be there four or five months. And that pastor's on sabbatical. So there's already different leadership that's already been instituted in the church. You can see that. And God brings it out at that moment. I have talked to this individual. I've talked to the staff. That is nothing short of God's mercy and grace right there. How he brought it out, when he brought it out, had nothing to do with men. It had nothing to do with people. Is God's timing. See, because he wasn't going to let a disobedient act between a couple people in the church that he is planting destroy what he is doing until it's time. Right? That's, that was his call. But yet he's also going to make sure that that disobedience is, is, is called and judged at some point later for the good of those people and for the good of the church. God is just sovereignly working on that whole thing. It's just an amazing thing. And I was on staff. I didn't see it. But it, God was working there. It was absolutely incredible. It was a horrific time. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But to see the grace of God and the plan of God working in a disobedient group of people, but yet shielding it for his purposes not, not saying that the sin was okay, but he wasn't going to let disobedience bring about and destroy something that he was doing for this purpose. You're here today, and the gospel is being presented for 25 years in this church because God has sovereignly protected the preaching of the gospel in this place. 
from ourselves. He protects it from us because of our sin. And so here we see that God is revealing Jonah's sin at the right time for his purposes. So God can reveal our sin whenever he chooses. Don't ever forget that. All right. Verse 8 through 10. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? You can see that, look, they're taking on water, right? They're just trying to get any, say something, Jonah. What, what, and what people are of you? Or what people are of you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. All right, I want to stop there for a second. When he says, I am a Hebrew, so I want you to think about this. We're talking 700 years, you know, before Christ. Um, you think about all the things that happened in the Old Testament, delivering from, you know, Egypt and all the miraculous things that God has done and all the wars and how God has intervened. When they heard, I believe, doesn't say this, but I think I can step out on this. When they heard that he was a Hebrew and that he believed in the God of heaven and who was over the, created the land and the sea, they took a step back. They realized who he worshiped. Doesn't mean that they believed, but they'd heard about the God of, Hebrew, of the Hebrews. They'd heard all that he had done, right? And they, what, what happens there? It says that who made the land and the sea because the gods that they were worshiping, these little G gods that they were worshiping, there was multiple gods and, and no one was over everything. So when when Jonah says, well, he made the land and the sea, basically Jonah's saying, look, he is the God over all gods. He's the God over the earth. And what does it say then? It says, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why were they afraid? If, if, if they don't believe in this God, why were they afraid? That's why I think that they understood who this God was. They had heard who the God of the Hebrews was. And they are exceedingly afraid. And then he says, and they say, what is this you have done? Like, they like, dude, you are wor- we know who he is. We know who that God is. Why would you do such a thing? And he says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because the, he had told them. So he's told them he's fleeing, and they're like, what are you doing, Jonah? You, you've disobeyed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, why would you do such a thing? So what's, what's the thing I want to, I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit, but what's the thing I think that as we are in the midst of, of our obedience, and as, because we don't want to live disobedient, we don't want God to, he's working in disobedience because he has to, but what do we, what do we want? What should, what should be a good thing for us? We should all fear the Lord, right? It says they were exceedingly afraid when they understood who Jonah was disobeying. They were exceedingly afraid. They weren't even believers in this God, and yet they were exceedingly afraid of the God of the Hebrews. Where is that reverence in the church today? Where is it at in your life? Step back in time a minute. Old Testament. Don't touch the mountain. Mount Sinai, or you'll die. Only Moses could go up. The the tabernacle, where the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant was kept, you touch it and you die. The priest that could go into the Holy of Holies and, and one day a year for the Day of Atonement had to go through all sorts of ceremonial washings and all sorts of things to make sure that, that they would not die when they went in. They would not get struck down. You remember when they were carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant and it went to fall and a man reaches out to stop it from falling into the mud and the dirt and he dies. Where is that reverence for God? Today in our culture, um, in the Christian culture even, we've really become very casual with God. He is our buddy. He is our friend. And don't get me wrong, Scripture clearly says he is our friend. Absolutely. 
But there's a reverence that I think is missing even in my own life sometimes that we need to have in our walk with Christ. In, in, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because of their sin. Do we fear God? And you say, well, Raleigh, I don't think we're supposed to fear God. God's, God's loving. Yes, he is, but we should fear him. Not in a sense of like, oh my gosh, he's coming after me, but he has an authority. He's the creator of all things. Shouldn't we have a respect and a, a fear of that type of power, especially knowing that we're sinful? <laughs> I mean, we, we're sinful. We're rebellious. I claim to believe, but yet in this holy, beautiful, powerful God, and yet I can turn around and the next moment I can be disobeyed. Where is my, where's my fear? And I think one of the reasons why we, in our nation, especially around the world, but especially in, in the Christian world, so to speak, in America here, it's one reason why I think the church is sliding so fast in so many different places because we've lost our fear of God. We just don't, well, he loves me. It's all good. I can do whatever I want, right? Well, yeah, he does love you and he died for you, but, but there needs to be a reverence here. Think about this for a second. What keeps, what keeps your children from doing something that they shouldn't do? Probably fear, at some level. And I know everybody hates to think that we should fear God. Like when you send your kids to school, they should, they should respect, we want to use that word, respect, rev, be reverent to the teachers and to the administrators and to the principals. And yet we see in our country today that that's not the case a lot of times. And how do, how's our public school system? I mean, when I was growing up, I've shared this with you before, in 1990, 1982, 81, 82, I was in high school, Northmont High School, almost every classroom had a paddle. Big, long one, right? Painted, some had holes drilled in it so it could fly through the air quicker, I guess, or, or make things on your butt when it hits you or whatever. I don't know, right? No one died. No one went to the hospital that I'm aware of because they got swatted in the rear end as a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid. But yet there was respect in the school, Right? Now you look at a kid cross-eyed and the teacher's in trouble. Where's the fear? Where's the respect? It's just, it's just not, it's not there anymore. And so I, I, just, I just see it here. They had a fear and they, they didn't even worship that God. They just heard of him and they were humbled by it. They were feared. They were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? Right? Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A reverence. I mean, what do, what do you think? Scripture, and it says, you know, don't spare the rod of your child. And this is not on corporal punishment today. But why? Because God is saying, look, a little bit of pain goes a long way in making a child behave. And I know some of you are probably right now saying, man, that's not right. Don't do that. It's time out for 10 minutes. You know, I was a kid. I can do 10 minutes, no problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? But getting a swat on my rear end that's going to leave a little bit of a sting for the next half hour or so is a whole different, whole different ball game, right? In the Old Testament, and maybe in the New Testament, they were afraid to sin. They were afraid of the judgment of God, the penalty. And you say, well, as Christians, we don't have that penalty anymore. No, you're right. We're not, we're not condemned for our sin, but we are judged for our sin. There will be rewards based on how we live our life. We won't, be, we won't be judged, we won't be condemned for it. Those that are not in Christ will be. They'll be judged according to the law and they will be sentenced to eternal death if, if they are found without Christ. That should, that, should, that should make you sit up and take notice. That, sh, that should cause you to say, yeah, we should fear the Lord. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See, what is it? What causes us to turn away from evil? The fear of judgment. The fear of the Lord. When it says that God has a wrath and he's storing up his wrath, why is he telling us that? Because he wants us to respect it and fear it. But yet we have a culture now that we don't do that. And so if we're going to live obedient lives, one of the things 
is we need to fear him in a, in a respectable way. I said it, I've said it many times. My parents loved me dearly. I had a great family, but I feared my father. Not because he ever hurt me, not because he was abusive. I don't, abusive is obviously off the table. That should never happen. And we obviously got to be careful there. We can get angry and we can sin in our anger and we can hurt people. That's not what I'm talking about. But man, I knew that if, if I did something and dad found out about it, I was going to be in deep trouble, right? And I believe that that was a gift for me that God, that God give, gave me a father that was like that. All right. Verse 11 and 12. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? Like They're like saying, oh man, you have done this against your God. What should we do with you, Jonah? The, the sea may quiet down for us. They're saying, look, you didn't sin against us, but we need the sea to stop doing this. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Or however you pronounce that word. Tempestuous, there you go. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. I got to tell you, I didn't see that one coming. Jonah's saying, just pick me up, throw me in. Do you ask, I had somebody ask me ask for first service. Maybe you've thought about this. Why didn't Jonah just jump in? Why did he say, pick me up and throw me in? I don't know. I can't read into this. I'll tell you what, I, I, I'll tell you a few thoughts I have on it. <clears throat> because his flesh didn't want to jump in. <laughs> you know what I mean? He didn't want to die. But he understands that he's accountable here and that these men, he, has, he owes these men something and he doesn't want them to die. And so he, he's kind of saying, look, I don't think I can do this. Just throw me in. Right? Have you ever been in that situation? You know the right thing to do. You know that you need to confess, but you need somebody to come along and make sure that you're held accountable to do such a thing. That's part of the reason why the body of Christ, I think, is so important, because we should hold each other accountable. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Jonah knows that this is the answer. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, I've not read any commentator, any theologian that talks about this. And so one of the things that I find interesting here in the text is that Jonah never seems to repent. He never says, guys, let me cry out and ask for forgiveness of God and, and drop me off at the next, you know, next port. Uh, give, give me a life raft. Throw me in. I'll, I'll make my way back. I'll go back. I'll be obedient. And, and this will rectify. I'll just go to the Lord and tell him I'm going to do that right now. No, he doesn't do that. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why nobody ever talks about that. My guess is because even though Jonah knows he has to be responsible here, he needs to do the right thing in confessing, he does not want to. His heart is still hard. It is still doesn't want to repent. And we'll see that later in the book, towards, even towards the end. And so we can sometimes, even in our disobedience, God is going to bring about things in us that our flesh doesn't even want to do. Because God is going to make sure that his plan and purposes are accomplished. So what do we see here? What's the kind of the takeaway from that text? We must take responsibility for our sin, right? Even though God works in our disobedience to bring about his perfect plan, that doesn't mean that we get off free and being obedient. We must take responsibility for our sin. We must confess it. We must go to God and confess it. We must confess to other people. We must deal with it rightly. We must bring it into the light as it says in John chapter 3, so that it can be clearly seen, right? We must take responsibility for our sin. You know, I, and sometimes that responsibility comes after it comes out, after God reveals our sin. Sometimes it comes prior. Ideally, it's best if it comes prior. But even if it comes after, it's important for reconciliation and to be honoring to God to do what is right. So let me continue the story of the pastor who committed the adultery. Shortly after it happened, it's interesting, this pastor wanted to be here, um, wanted this bigger building, wanted to, you know, his vision was to have what we have right now. 
And I remember when we first got into the building, it was in Christmas of 2013. I was standing right over there at the door, and I thought to myself, he'll never preach here. The thing that he wanted, the thing that he'd worked so hard for, he'll never preach here. Now, I believe God loves him, he's restored him, and, but he'll never preach here. God took something away that he wanted, right? Maybe it became an idol, I don't know. But this idea of taking responsibility, so do you know that that man came and stood before the congregation with his family and confessed what he had done? You know how hard that was? And we didn't make him do that. I mean, I know there's some churches that would make you do that. We said, we think that's a good idea. And he came and he confessed. Oh my gosh, what a, what a night that was. But that glorified God. Man, that glorified God. What a great thing that was. And I believe that's why, one of the reasons why, along with many other reasons, why God has restored him and his marriage. He has a very loving, gracious wife, as you can only imagine. I always said, she would, besides Jesus, she was the hero. So we've got to take responsibility for our sin. All right, let's finish up. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They don't really want to throw Jonah in. Why is that? Because they fear the God of Hebrews. They don't know that they can throw this guy in without having the, the wrath of this God come down upon them. It says, nevertheless, they rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, So here you have some pagan sailors who believe in other gods calling out to God now. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done what has pleased you. So they're having a glimpse that God is doing this. And it pleases God. In other words, they understand God's sovereignty is at work here. They understand that that Jonah has been called out by him for God's purposes. That God isn't doing all this. And they're saying, look, help us not be responsible for whatever you're doing. We don't want to screw this up, Lord. Lord, let not us perish for this man's life, right? We we don't want to throw him into the sea. They don't think they think he's innocent because they know that he's lied to their God or he's running from their God. But they don't have any other choice. So in verse 15, it says, So they picked him up, and they hurled him into the sea. And the Lord ceased from its raging. What happens? You would think they would be happy at that point. They'd be, oh, the deal is done. Let's get back to our voyage. What happens in verse 16? It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. The, The raging stopped. Jonah's gone, right? Why would they fear? They feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Why would they fear? Well, once again, we have to kind of make some assumptions here. They feared because they just realized again that God has power over all things. He is sovereign over the the waves. He's sovereign over the storm. They get it that the gods they were praying to had no power over anything, and the God of the Hebrews stops the storm. And so what do they do? It says they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I don't know what that meant. What do you mean they made sacrifices? Did they have animals on board? Maybe for food. Maybe they did blood sacrifices. I don't know. Did they do some type of grain grain offering? I don't know. Doesn't say. They made vows. What kind of vows? I don't know. They made some type of vow, and it seemingly, I would read into it that they've made vows to God, that whatever they were doing was an act of worship to the God of the Hebrews. They loved him. They understood. They revered him. They feared him. They understood now. I believe that these men, there's a good chance I would say that these men now have become believers and followers of the God of the Hebrews. Maybe not. But it seems that way to me in the text. So what's the last kind of thing i just point out to you? Isn't it beautiful that even in Jonah's disobedience, God is using the entire thing to bring about possibly the salvation of people that are far from him? That's amazing. 
Jonah's disobedience is causing havoc for these guys, but God, working through disobedience, is doing it in such a way that not only is he going to get Jonah to do what he wants to do, but he's going to use the whole circumstance to bring these guys to a place of an awareness of him, and ultimately, I believe, that they now become believers in him. And all in the midst of something that most of us would think was the most scary, terrifying thing that we would have. They're all you know, thinking about perishing. And so what do you take away from that? I just want to say, I think that you can take away from that no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what is going on, no matter what tragedy, no matter what hardship you're going on, God is still working in your midst. Don't ever think that God is not working, even in the most hard things. As believers, what does Romans say, right? All things are working together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you're a believer here today, everything, every hardship, everything that's happening is working for his purposes and for you. We don't see it. We don't understand it sometimes, but that's the truth. I, had, I was talking to a woman the other day that said, you know, have you ever had those moments when um, something happens, you get, a, um, you get a check in the mail, you know, your finances aren't real good, and you get a, a rebate on something, and it's a couple hundred bucks, and it's going to pay this water bill, and you say, oh, man, the Lord is so good. He, like, he did that for me. And I said, yeah, that's good to give God credit. But what happens when something tragic happens? Did God not, was not he sovereign over that as well? But we don't go there. Like, like that's why Job was so important, because Job can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He takes, he gives, he takes away. It's all his. And so I just want to challenge you, no matter what's happening in your life, yes, give God glory for things that are good, but give God glory for everything. Give God glory for everything in the midst of the heartache and the suffering because God is working in all things. We don't see it. We wouldn't have seen that this is how God was going to reach these sailors, but he does. He uses Jonah's disobedience to reach them and to bring fear into them and to teach them about the God of the Hebrews. And then now they're offering sacrifices and making vows to the Lord. And so what's the takeaway this morning? We need to rest in the sovereignty of God. That's a, that's a mystery for many of us. I, I struggle with it. Like, what does that mean to rest? God's all-powerful, all-knowing, can do anything he wants, can reveal our sin whenever he wants, right? But you know what? Without, without understanding that God is sovereign, I have no peace. If I don't think God is sovereign over everything, then I have true fear of, of the world not working out, you know, that in a way that it's pleasing to God, and yet I can rest no matter what happens. You know, look, I, as a pastor, I, I do lots of difficult things with funerals and meeting with people, and through all of that, it's hard, but I trust that God is using every one of those difficult situa situations just as I trust he's using every wonderful, beautiful situation for his purposes and for the purpose of his church. And I tell you, to get to that place in your thinking is not always easy, but it is the biblical place to be. God uses suffering for his purposes and for our good. So you need to rest in that he's sovereign over all of it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand the significance of that truth. That no matter what is going on in the world, even wars and famine. But God, nothing is happening that you are not sovereign over. Father, we pray, we, we cry out to you to, to, to push back death and disease and to, to bring healing where there is pain. Father, we acknowledge that we don't know all things. We don't know the purposes and how you're having to work all things through a sinful creation to bring about your perfect will. But Lord, we trust you in it. And Lord, where we struggle to trust, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the mercy that you give us every day. Lord, I pray as we contemplate even today in the text that, Father, we will see that a healthy reverence or fear of you, a holy, majestic, just, loving God is a right way that we should think. And Father, that we realize that that will actually be good for us. It'll keep us from sin. It will give us 
an awareness of our sin. And so, Father, we pray that as we leave this place, we go home, that, Father, we will have an understanding that you work through our disobedience for your glory. But, Father, our desire is that we will seek after holiness and that we will see how you're working more clearly. And, Father, help us, above all, to rest in your sovereign work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.